Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 14. My Hard Drive Died is a show which we actually haven't done in a while. We'll try to remedy that. Um, we have, we, where we talk about hard drives and basically have the world's eminent hard drive expert, Scott Moulton, come on and just talk about so much, uh, give you so much information about hard drives, how to fix them, uh, things that, that could go wrong with them, how they're constructed, the new technology, that it will blow your mind, I guarantee it. Let's introduce the man right now. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Hey, how are you? Doing great. Doing great, actually. It's good to talk to you again. I know. I miss you. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, I think we did one at the beginning of December, but uh, or some somewhere around there. But uh, yeah, it's been a little bit more than a month since we've done one. Yeah, we'll keep doing them. We'll get them out. Yes. We'll get them out as we can. Yeah, it's uh, you know, obviously with the travel schedule and you know things out of town, it's a normal thing for me to try to try to you know get on when I can, as soon as I can. And I've got some upcoming announcements and stuff that I can talk about too that are coming up in March. Oh, good. Um, Why don't we go right into that then? Okay. All right. Well, uh, a friend of mine and me put on a conference here in Atlanta that's called Outer Zone, and so Outer Zone is going to be March nineteenth. So basically, it's the 18th and the 19th. We actually have kind of a get-together on the 18th, and then on the 19th, we actually have talks. But it's uh, in Atlanta. We rent a hotel that's near the airport, and we have a one-day conference, basically. It's a, uh, a, a donation con, basically. You don't have to pay anything to go. You can just come. So I'll be giving a talk on hard drives there, obviously. So anybody that wants to come and see anything about hard drives, that's the day to come. So March 19th. Uh, you can go to outerzone.org, and we're going to start putting the information up there. The only thing is uh, zone is spelled with a zero instead of a O. So it's outerzone, Z-O-N-E, dot org. Gotcha. And where is that, again, what uh, city? It's in Atlanta. It's right next to the airport. So uh, off of Virginia Avenue, there's a, a hotel that we rent there called Wesleyan Inn. And they have two rooms, so we can have a game room, and we sell T-shirts and a bunch of other things as well. Um, and then there's a, a room that holds about 100 people to actually do a conference that, so that everybody can do talks. And we'll have about uh, 8 to 10 speakers that particular day. Oh, cool. Are you going to cover anything specifically about hard drives or just general a general talk? Um, I have this uh, talk that I just did at ShmooCon this weekend, which was uh, jammed right up on uh, basically my development stage, trying to get the, the items developed and getting them done. And so basically I'm going to be improving this one, adding some more content that is um, related to uh, flash animations and things like that on hard drives. And I try to animate the entire talk. And right now I've got about six, anim six minutes of animation in my current talk. Uh, and it took every, every day pretty much since December 5th or so to render these animations to get what I actually just added into uh, these talks for ShmooCon, and it finished like Wednesday night. So <laughs> I will be adding more content between now and then, and so I will do an enhanced version of this talk, which was uh, it's about spindle replacement, bearing replacement, fluid dynamic replacement, that kind of thing for repairing hard drives. Ooh, that sounds pretty, pretty right. meaty. Yeah, there usually is a good selection of speakers. Uh, a lot of people who have been to cons know a guy named Billy Hoffman. Usually he does one on uh, web development and some web content. There's a, a couple other really good speakers. There'll probably be something on um, IP version 6 uh, also at this one. So uh, it's usually a, a really good gathering of, of, you know, 100 people or so. Sounds like fun. So outerzone.com, right? 
Outerzone.org. Outerzone.org, Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z-
but the projectors at Schmoocon this time were were kind of pathetic. They weren't the best. Damn, no, they look fantastic. I've seen them. They look great. Yeah. It's a shame. Thank it's you. a shame the projectors bombed over there. Yeah, but it it happens. Yeah, sucks. At least yeah. you, at least well, you have them done and created, and you could distribute them at other conferences and different places. Yeah, it'll grow as time goes on, and we'll expand this material. This was the maximum I could do. Um, I mean, I thank ShmooCon for having me back. I've, I've been there. I've given four or five speeches now, and uh, and I love ShmooCon. It's one of the best conferences, and uh, certainly is one of the better put-together, more professional conferences I've been to. So I'm happy to have been there. Uh, next time, hopefully, I'll just get the brighter projectors. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how that goes. Good luck with that. Yeah. Um uh, what did you want to go over today, Scott? Well, uh, you know, basically I've spent the last three months or so kind of developing this process for uh, rebuilding these platters that I presented at uh, ShmooCon. Uh, I have also done some other work. Last week I was at, there was the DOD, uh, Department of Defense uh, Cybercrime Conference here in Atlanta. So I did some new material and did some diagnostic stuff for that cybercrime conference. So one of the first things I did was I developed this new flowchart, basically, which is a, kind of a mapping of my mind to try to show in a diagnostics mode when you're starting to go through hard drives how you progress and think through these things. So uh, so up on my website, there is a link to this, um, which most people also notice. I have a new website. Let's what check you, it out. You, Let me show it right now. I think it's fantastic, man. Who made that logo? Well, I love it. Uh, I had a I hired a developer uh, in Australia, and we worked on it for about two or three months simultaneously while I'm doing all this uh, other stuff. Uh, basically, my goal this time, you know, I had a pretty ugly website before. Yeah. Um, we focused a lot on being able to do, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn and, uh, you know, Facebook links and things like that. So there's bars down there. Everything is database now. Uh, that was one of the things. My old site was was really becoming very difficult to maintain because uh, things were, you know, updated basically in the page. So this is all done uh, physically in Drupal now. So everything's in a database. I can do blog postings. So the menu bar now has changed to reflect that. So now you'll actually see on the menu bar we have the blog postings. There's a of the presentation page is better, and now the individual items can be added in the presentation page. Uh, and so the presentation page is kind of the meat and potatoes right now of the free material. The, uh, I certainly have other stuff there that's for pay, but on the presentation page, this is pretty much all the free stuff. So as you scroll down through this page, you'll see I've got links. Like one of the things is all my previous presentations and source material and stuff for the talks I give, I give it away for free. So there's a link on that page that says that it's to the files. So there's basically a my hard drive died. Uh, files area now that basically dumps to an FTP site nice. and you can go ahead and pull that. So it says my hard drive died file resources and there is a spot right there where you can click on it and it'll take you to uh, hundreds, if not, you know, you know, thousands of megs of files that are there from previous stuff that I've done. Damn guys, get that while you can. Yeah. It's, uh, hopefully it'll be there for a while. Um, you know, right now I'm hoping that, uh, GoDaddy doesn't, you know, beat me down too much on my bandwidth. Uh, and, uh, then also you'll also see the advanced slides and the, uh, advanced content that I did for the DOD last week. It's right under the recent content slash talks. There's uh two, two items that are underneath there underneath the YouTube channel, which one of them is the advanced diagnostic speech slides and then the flow chart itself. And so, uh, you can click on those and download the flow chart and the slides. Um, 
And now the flow chart, as you uh, are displaying now, basically the flow chart goes through from the beginning to the end, just kind of the different problems that I run into when things aren't working. Uh, the goal for the flow chart and for those particular slides is to stop people from just massively trying to uh, rip apart the drive and replace parts. This has become much more common now for people to go, hey, look, I just want to ch- you know, take this board off and swap it or do something else with this board. And it's not always the case. It's not always something that you have to replace. There could be some sectors that are actually in error. There could be some other problems. But there's uh, four basic things that you're looking for there whenever you're trying to do uh, uh, data recovery that even if, if those four things come up, basically you could possibly have access to the data, even though you might not be seeing it. Maybe you need some other equipment or there's a firmware problem. But in those instances, changing out equipment is probably not going to help you. So uh, so typically what you're looking for would be model number, serial number, geometry, and, <clears throat> and uh, for the drive to come ready, basically. And I go through the process of describing that in the slides and uh, how a drive actually comes ready, how you can tell when it's ready. Because really the drive can respond and give you a ton of diagnostics information and actually on every single sector actually has a breakdown inside the sector of how to reply and tell you an error code. But none of the software and none of the, the, the devices that we have out there uh, that are just public domain devices, in other words, Windows and Linux and a lot of the other tools, don't display uh, any of that content. Even diagnostics tools, you know, when you get to the microscope, you know, I bought a tool called microscope or some other package out there. They don't display those error codes. So typically when you're getting to some software like, uh, you know, HD Guru has MHDD and there's Victoria and there's a couple of other tools out there that will actually display those diagnostics codes, uh, you know, when the sector is actually responding and you can see that content. So you'll know, oh, yes, I know this type of error that I have. And so basically my goal here was to try to acknowledge the fact that not everything just needs to be replaced. And ripping off a board isn't necessarily going to do you a lot of good in some cases if you don't know what you're looking for. Right. So it's all about understanding these basics. Yeah, these are this is great. It's going to help out a lot of people. I mean, it, it is because problem is when guys run into hard drives, they don't necessarily know what's wrong with them. I mean, there's some very obvious symptoms like, you know, you have on here the flow chart. You hear noises scraping, for example. Well, okay, well, what exactly does that mean? So the flow chart right. at least directs you to the right right place and gives you the right steps what to do man this is really cool right i mean most of the time these days some of the biggest things i run into are are two things one is that obviously the new seagate hard drives that are 7211 and above 7212 uh that those have firmware problems and those have things that exhibit a problem that looks similar to a board problem or head problem but may not be a board problem or head problem just because of these you know particular firmware problems and almost all drives, you could open the lid and look at something, you know, so if you heard a scraping noise or there was something else, you could open the drive and you could look at it and you would know, you know, what your condition is. Basically, is the platter scratch, the head damage, except for Western Digital hard drives. Western Digitals uh, have a screw that's mounted to the head assembly. And when you remove this screw, it causes the head to wobble back and forth. And it basically causes an alignment problem. And now you can no longer tell whether or not you had a board problem or some other problem that uh, was unrelated to this particular problem just because you've had a screw that you've removed. So I w- you know, I'm trying to at least make sure people understand. I've done this in some other talks and pushed the other information, but don't remove the screw 
in the lid of a Western Digital Drive. Anything else you can look at, just not that one. Yeah, we talked about that before. That's one screw could just mess up the whole works. Right, exactly. So that's in the flow chart, basically. That's some of the content that basically, like, you know, stop here. You, you know, you can go in a different direction. Or, you know, there are times, obviously, that everything's not do-it-yourself. Or, or if you're going to do-it yourself, it's going to require some equipment that may be more expensive than you want to use yourself. Right, so, right. But uh, I've, I've progressively gotten more and more people who are interested in doing data recovery as a business or a lifestyle. And so from that perspective, you know, teaching the classes and going down that path, there are some do-it-yourselfers out there who are being creative in their processes of building stuff and, and kind of innovation. I've seen, you know, more innovation than usual from that perspective. Hmm. So, uh, so I'm trying to help those people out now as well, the, the people who want to learn it, you know, uh, you, you know, even it goes as far as, you know, FBI, CIA, or a couple of other people that have been in my class from that perspective, that there may be content that they want to learn. Uh, and they may have the money to buy certain tools, but they need to know which ones they are and why you want to buy this tool. Right. Now, it's an expensive, uh, you know, undertaking to, to really get these things fixed. Like, to be able to fix them no matter no matter what the problem is, it's it could cost some bucks. I mean, I've seen the equipment that you use. So any gorilla methods would be, you know, great if they're if they, they're dependable and work. Right. It's a, Again, it's all about the knowledge. It's all about knowing what you have to do at that particular juncture without making a mistake. And uh, that's typically where things go wrong with hard drives is you're taking something that's complex. You know, if your car didn't start one day, a lot of people wouldn't just say, oh, let's go rip out a carburetor or, you know, if the car even has a carburetor anymore. But, you know, it's uh, but you get the point. It's, uh, you know, they're not just going to rip parts off and replace them. So, uh, so basically I'm just trying to, you know, not that ripping parts off and replacing them might work in some cases. There are some boards and some drives that do work with that. Right. But it, it does help to have a better knowledge of, which ones those are and, and where you're going to stand once you actually do the rebuild. Absolutely. It's great stuff. Thank you. So, um, What else do well, you want to go over? Well, you know, the next thing I did was basically uh, ShmooCon, basically going to ShmooCon. It's in Washington, D.C. And so this particular talk that I did at ShmooCon, which uh, uh, I believe you have some, uh, some of my animations you can kind of show, and uh, I can kind of, you know, hit that from that perspective and, show some of the basics uh you know we had a tool that we could use to remove platters when we had a a frozen motor so basically when the spindle locks up we had a tool that's called an hpe so it's a hard disk platter extractor and we could take these platters and we could remove them from a drive and put them on another drive another motor and so that's kind of uh, where we're starting with this is that this tool no longer works on certain new hard drives that we have. There's a there's now these spacers, these black spacers that basically sit around the outside edges of the platters, and it stops us from using this tool. And there's there wasn't a lot of easy ways to get around this. There wasn't a lot of easy ways where we could, you know, cut these off. Uh, at one time when they were plastic, you could kind of use like a hot wire, cut them off and do something else with it. But uh, but you know not anymore. Basically now. We're dealing with some stuff that might be, <coughs> excuse me, that we might have metal ones that we're going to have to deal with. So these, uh, these, these metal ones. Uh, the next slide shows metal ones. Is that it there? <coughs> no, that particular one's plastic. Um, that one right there, the silver ones. Those are metal, and so we can no longer just cut those off and continue on uh, trying to rebuild the drive. So we've had to find a new way to remove these 
without doing any other damage to either the platters, the heads, or the drive in order to get to the well, – at this point, basically what we're looking at is there's bearings inside the drive. And these particular ones are called a fluid dynamic bearings. And we can replace that particular core of the bearings, and then the platters will be able to spin and we'll be able to get the job done. However, try and take off – you can't take off each platter individually because they're sequenced and they're aligned with the platters below them. Right. So if we could have taken them off one at a time, that would be an easy job. You take off the top one, then you take off the, the spacer that's in between it, then you take off the next platter, and so on and so on. Right. So uh, so since we can't do this, we have to figure out a way to remove those platters, keeping them in line, and popping this other piece out. Keeping them in line one at a – you have to still do it one at a time, <laughs> one at a time, but you got to keep them in line. Uh, no, now you will remove the entire set together. Uh-huh. So now the uh, the hard disk platter extractor that we had before also did that. It removed them all together, kept them bound together. Uh, the difference is it took the platters off the spindle. In this particular case, we're going to take the spindle off of the bearings, and we're going to replace the bearings. So uh, so if you progress, you'll see that uh, this is what we're what our goal is now. This is uh, this device that's sitting in the middle is basically uh, what we're looking at here is a picture of the top of the spindle, and it's being surrounded by the fluid dynamic bearings, which are encased in basically a, uh, you know, kind of like a metal sheet. And there's a pole that basically goes up through through the bottom of it. So this is basically the patent for the submission. And in the middle, you can see that there's these grooves that go around in the middle around the uh, sheath that's around the pole. And these grooves are very, very important for uh, fluid dynamic bearings. There's a difference between fluid bearings and fluid dynamic bearings. Uh, and one of those items is is that the fluid bearings, basically whatever you have is submerged in this fluid and that the fluid basically is there all the time. In fluid dynamic bearings, you have a situation where the fluid sits in another location and it's basically sucked up into this the, the sheath itself and then surrounds the pole in order to keep the pole going. So you have to have your fluid bearings around your pole. Huh. So, so uh, if you progress a little bit out, you know, on the slides, basically you can see this is the goal. This uh, silver item with the post through the middle is what we're getting to. So, for the people who don't necessarily see slides or something like that, you can go to a website and see them. But basically, there's this pole that goes through the middle of a cylinder, and this pole is basically what is lubricated internally. And this is basically the the device that we're looking for. Now, my goal for this particular talk, there are tools that are out there. I've seen several tools, and they're typically fairly expensive, uh, several thousands of dollars, if not greater than that. I've seen them as high as uh, six to $10,000 for tools to remove the bearings. And my problem with this is that removing the bearings is one of kind of the smallest piece of one of the jobs that we have. And I'm not trying to diminish its importance here because it's a very difficult task, but it doesn't solve any of our other problems. It doesn't solve our head problems or anything else that we already have, our alignment issues. We still have to do all that work ourselves, just like we did before. And so we had a very inexpensive piece to remove the platters. And this particular 6,000 or higher tool would basically remove you know, the cost that we had of the smaller, least, least expensive tool. So now it becomes the most expensive uh, device in our arsenal. Yeah, but Scott, so my, that, this so you're basically trying to, <coughs> to pull that pole out of this bearing, and that's you need a six thousand dollar tool to do that. 
So uh, what you're looking at is the entire set. That's the bearing. Okay. That, that you're not trying to pull the pole out of it. This particular container, basically, with the pole going up through it, is the bearing. I see. And that's what we're trying to remove from inside of the, the sheet that's around it. Basically, we have a spindle that sits over it that basically the platters are mounted to. And so this piece is captured between the solid component of the base of your hard drive when you flip it over and you see a little hole that's a circle and the top. And I, I have pictures of it coming up, but uh, but basically that's what we're looking at gotcha. is that this, this piece is, is captured between the base of your the metal of your drive and the spindle component where the platters are actually mounted to. Gotcha. And we're going to need to remove this piece and replace it and then realign everything, put it all back in. Okay. You want me to hit the next? You direct yeah, me with the next slides. Yeah, here. go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, you know, my talk at ShmooCon was basically about going through how the bearings work because uh, I do a little bit more on the education part. You, you can keep hitting play, basically. Uh, so I'm trying to show what the inside of this particular cylinder looks like. And so uh, uh, I'm trying to do an educational component so people understand why it's locking up. Now, there's this pole that basically goes through... Uh, the middle of the cylinder, and underneath it, there's a small ring of copper that's mounted to this pole, and then there's a cap on the bottom to hold it in. And so that's basically where the fluid is sitting. And so once it starts to spin up, then the fluid is moved up the post by some grooves that are cut in a particular pattern inside of the cylinder. Uh, you, so you can advance. So uh, this is what it basically looks like inside once I break this apart, the copper piece, the the bottom and basically I tore this whole one up. I beat the crap out of this one to get it out. Looks so, like uh, it. so yeah, so, uh, so the post is, this was uh, actually frozen. Uh, you could not move this post in the middle. This is what actually allows the platters to spin. And so uh, what's basically happening is, is that some of the fluid is not being distributed or it's overheating in certain places, causing it to lock up, which actually then kind of grips it inside of the cylinder. Uh, you can hit advance. So this uh, uh, this kind of uh, horrible slide that you're looking at was basically to show that prior to like 2005 or so, most of the drives had ball bearings in them. Mm -hmm. And basically, you can see the two balls at the top slide, the two pink dots that are in pairs on the bottom and the top. Right. And that that uh, those pink balls basically there's the problem with bearings and bearings uh, as these balls are spinning around in a track that basically goes around the device that allows the thing to spin. Well, the problem with bearings is that they're kind of some somewhat oblong, or as they heat up, they change shape, and you start having all kinds of problems. So people have seen seized motors before sure. with bearings. And so the whole point is uh, to get away from bearings and move to fluid dynamic bearings because they can, they're can they faster, they support uh, more um, uh, speed, and they have a little bit better chance of uh, not heating up and doing some of the same things that the ball bearings themselves did. So that's basically a problem. Uh, the product that basically IBM was showing on the bottom, which is the fluid dynamic bearings themselves. Uh, you can advance. Okay. <clears throat> and so uh, I have an animation that's basically showing a cutaway of how this post in the center of the cylinder of the fluid dynamic bearings can overheat. And then it basically seizes. So, so this cutaway, basically, it'll just turn redder and redder until basically the post uh, expands to the point that it actually seizes inside of the drive. Uh, advance. And that's because of fluid not getting to it properly? 
Uh, yes, it can be for a couple of things. These grooves right here, where you're actually looking at this particular picture, this one actually shows some grooves that are cut inside the cylinder. And so what happens is fluid dynamic variance has a lot of math behind it, behind how these grooves work, how the oil itself is actually going to be moving up the shaft so that it actually creates amount amount of pressure. And I kind of equate it to the same thing as like a, an egg, you know, that if you applied pressure, it's equal amounts of pressure all the way around the egg, that it basically won't crack because you create enough pressure inside the egg in equally in all the positions that it doesn't crack. Hmm. And that's basically what's looking at here in this post is basically that the fluid dynamic bearings, when they're equally distributed, it actually is lubricating and withstanding the pressure. But in the next slide, if you <coughs> look at the next slide, you can see these grooves that are cut that basically cause the fluid to move. And then as it's rotating, it kind of makes um, you know, a, a wormhole or whatever you want to call it, a, whirl, a whirlpool as it goes up the shaft and keeps it lubricated. But it also creates pressure and controls the heat as it's going through this particular process. So on the next slide, there'll be a breakdown of what the heat looks like as it's going around in this tube and what this, you can see how the grooves are angled and what it actually causes for the heat in these particular grooves. Uh, so there's actually pressure that's equally dis displaced around the entire tube to keep this at the, uh, the, right, the, the right position in the right lubrication and the right amount of pressure. And so I want people to keep in mind that, you know, this fluid basically as your drive is off and it sits there, that the content basically will kind of seep down to the bottom again. And it'll be sitting at the bottom waiting for it to spin up so that it can actually cause the fluid to go back up the shaft. So if it's cold outside and you have your hard drive in the trunk of your car or your laptop in the trunk of your car and you bring it in and you immediately turn it on without waiting for it to heat up from a frozen temperature or something, it may affect how thick this fluid is, which is essentially uh, ester oil, which is something that's kind of like what you put in your car, you know, Penzake or something like that. So, uh, so this fluid, you have to kind of keep in mind that, you know, this is also affected by temperature and it may cause you physical problems, may cause your drive to seize or cause other problems with your drive because metal contracts as it's cold and the fluid contracts and gets thicker based on temperature. So there's a lot of these things that, you know, make a difference to the drive. And you've got to take those into account, which is what I'm basically trying to document so that people can understand why they seize. And it, it's gotten progressively worse as platters have gotten heavier and there's more platters around the spindle. And so you're putting a lot of pressure on these, for, you know, these, this pin in this area. And I've seen them snap off. I've seen them twist. I've seen them just lock down. And once that happens, uh, this is a very, very difficult task to replace and in up until now has been very expensive to do. I've basically come up with a way to do this with parts from a second hard drive and do it for less than a hundred bucks. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. That yeah, is it's, how, well, uh, but first of all, I got just a couple questions up to this point and then we'll talk about that. Cause that sounds killer. How many drives now are using the fluid bearings? When did they stop using ball? Uh, basically, you're looking almost all of them after 2005 have started going to fluid bearings. There's some instances before that, but uh, it's generally uh, 2005 and on, bigger, smoother. I mean, and you'll see it on the box. You know, they were originally uh, advertising a lot. It was a big deal uh, because you basically lose uh, all the sound. Uh, you have about four decibels in sound that it drops. So 
your your drives are a lot quieter and that's what people want is yeah. quieter drives so ball bearings are a thing of the past and they don't they're hard to manufacture ball bearings are hard to align and they have to be a perfect uh, quality in order for them to work and they wear out hmm. faster in this particular case uh you know again most of the problems that i'm seeing are primarily because fluid bearings uh, uh, you know, their the, their platters are heavier. They can bend a little bit more. Yeah. Somebody dropped it over, and even a small drop might cause enough of this post to bend a little bit right. while it's when it hits the table or right. something. Yeah, it's a pretty cool invention. I mean, <laughs> it, they seem to be nicely suited for hard drives. Now, you, you said you found a way to fix these and remove them, replace them for under hundred bucks. Yeah, it's uh, it'll take you probably using kind of my method here that I'm describing in these videos. Uh, and and especially in these slides, uh, you you have to basically practice, and it'll take you about six hours of practice to kind of get it down. Uh, if if you basically follow what I have here as kind of the guide, it will solve a lot of problems. And maybe people can improve upon what I've actually chosen because I'm looking for things. You know, I didn't go down the street and mill some parts because I could have done that, and I could have been a lot more fluid with what I'm doing here. It could have been a lot better. Uh, selection of tools that but, I could have made. Yeah, but more expensive for us. Yeah, more expensive and not easily something that just anybody could have done. Right. So if you know you're in the middle of Utah and you want to figure out how to replace these bearings, you could spend a day practicing and making your own tools basically out of another hard drive, and you could make this work. And it's it's worth doing if you're going to do this a lot in the future. Definitely, definitely. So how do you do it? Okay, well, if you want to get to the slides, well, so hit advance. Here we go. So so this is basically kind of the overview of what I'm doing. I'm taking another drive that I've carved the pieces out of, and uh, one of the biggest pieces that I had a problem with was trying to find a cylinder that was the right size so that I could actually put this into what's called an arbor press. You basically have to break this bottom piece free so that you can actually get the, the platters to fall out and then you have to flip it over and do the reverse. And so basically what we're trying to do is get the this particular piece, this one piece, out of the middle of a bad drive uh, and replace it with a good one. So there's some redundancy here because you basically have to do this process three times. Uh, and so to get, it, to get it down, you're going to do one that's going to be, I'm going to take a bad drive that either doesn't work or does work, it doesn't matter, and I'm going to basically tear it apart and get the parts out of it and use those parts. And then the second one's going to be I'm going to remove the spindle from a the bad hard drive, the client drive, the mm -hmm. one that has the data on it that I want. Mm -hmm. I'm going to remove the bearings from this drive. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go to another good working drive. I'm going to remove the bearings from that drive, and I'm going to put them in this one that has the client drive in it. So I'm going to replace them. Okay. So... So those are kind of the steps I'm going to go through. And so if you, you go back to the slides, I'll advance. So go ahead. And, and so this was, this is basically still in the overview mode. Basically, I'm going to use this drive, and I'm going to use the bottom of the drive as a tool to help remove by using what's called a drift. I'm going to punch the center pin out of the center of the platters without touching the platters or doing anything to it. So it does require you know you to practice a little bit and try to get some some good skills here. If you advance, I'll show the real pictures and the real the real drive as we're stepping through it. What's this blue machine here? That's just a press. Yes, it's an am it's uh basically an Arbor press. Okay. It's about forty five fifty dollars at Harbor Freight or you know uh, if you can find a 
a local shop, maybe an Ace or something like that. Okay. That you know, it's an Arbor Press. I'm using a one ton Arbor Press. Okay. Uh, yeah, and there's several different models that are made, all the way up to two tons and three tons. And you know, sometimes they're used for cars or parts or pistons and things like that. So you ought to be able to find an Arbor Press. It's basically manpower. You're basically pulling on a uh, pole that's attached to a gear, and the gear pushes pressure down on an arm. And so uh, what you're looking at now is the bottom of the hard drive. And so you've seen this silver component before on the bottom of your drive. This is basically where this bearing is, and it's epoxied in. You can see this epoxy around it. Right. And basically it takes about one ton of pressure to break this thing free of that center pin. So this is what I'm trying to do. Now the problem is I needed something that's exactly the same size to punch this thing out. Right. So what I did was I took another drive, and I just beat the crap out of it because it's chicken and the egg. You don't already have one to use, so I need to get one out of another drive. Right. So I actually just used a punch and a hammer, and I banged on it until I got one of these free. And so once it's once it's physically free and I've got it out of the drive, then you know these are the platters I don't care about, so I can just kind of bang through the drift with a pin on the top and knock this pit piece out. And right. I'm going to use this as a spacer, basically to put it in the right location. So if you advance from this slide, this is what it looks like after I've knocked the, the crap out of one and it falls out. Okay. Uh, the, the ring that's around it, basically you'll see the ring around the outside edge and it's black. That's actually the magnet. And the magnet actually is the piece that when it sits over the um, inside the drive, there's a coil. And the coil that it's sitting over when you apply electricity to it basically causes it to spin. Right. And so that's the magnet part. And you're going to try to break it free, obviously, without smashing this magnet on your client drive. But that's that's one of the pieces that you can actually do. So so this is it upside down with the space. Now, if you, you see the next slide, if you turn hit the next slide, this is what it looks like on the top. And this pin is basically just jammed in there. This is the center pin that goes all the way through the cylinder inside the fluid dynamic bearings. So we're going to knock this out with something called the drift. We're going to pick one that's exactly the size of the circle itself, and we're going to put it over it. Uh, we're not going to use a punch because we don't want to damage it or mushroom it. I'm just going to use a drift, and I'm going to bang it out or use the arbor press to push it out. Okay. So you hit the next button. So this is what it looks like once I've got it out. This, is, this would be the client drive or whatever else once I'm done, but I just wanted to give you a picture of once it's done and it's clear, this is the spindle, and it's still got the platters mounted to it. It's still got the spacer on it. And so our goal is to basically have this client drive, this preserved in the process. So I'm going to go through those steps so that you can actually can see that, and that's what we're going to try to do is get it out and then put it back in. Now, this pretty picture that you're looking at that is uh, – this is basically the coils that are wrapped around uh, you know, the, the, the metals. Now, what IBM calls this thing itself is called the stator. S-T-A-T-O-R. Okay. It's the stator, and basically it changes the state of your spinning. So when you apply a voltage in one direction, it spins one direction. You apply the voltage in the reverse direction, it spins in the reverse direction. And it's very similar to uh, – and platters never spin in the reverse direction, so that would never happen or should never happen. Right. Uh, this is very similar to the a way a speaker works. So when you actually see the coil on a speaker, this is the same idea. When uh, a voltage is applied to it, it actually causes it to vibrate based on the magnet that's surrounding it. And so that vibration then causes the cone to vibrate and make sound. Well, in this case, it's just going to cause resistance in the opposite direction of the magnet. causing it to spin. Right. And so that's how the platters actually spin. This is the component that's necessary to make that actually happen. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so 
the stator rises above the top of the platform of the bottom of the drive. And you'll notice before when we actually were looking at the punch that we're going to punch out through the top of the drive. Yeah. That uh, has a ring around the top. And that ring happens to be just about the right size to fit over the top of the stator. Right. So if you, so basically, I'm going to use that drive as a catch. So this is what I'm doing. I'm taking a bad one, and I'm just banging the crap out of it to get the centerpiece out. <laughs> so that's just a hammer and, and a punch tool. Once I've actually knocked it free, you'll see. Uh, so it had epoxy, and basically that center hole uh, is the exact same size of what, what the spindle bearings are themselves. And so... Uh, so I'm not this one free, and then the next slide you'll see. Now it's free and clear, and it's just sitting there. Now I've got to take the center pin out. So I basically have to punch the center pin to get this thing free. So hit the next slide. So what I've done is I said, well, look, i got to have an area I can hold this thing so that when I push down on the arbor press that the punch can punch it through, and I've got to have a way to catch it. And I don't have anything sitting around the arbor press that's the same size. What I figured out is if I took the bottom of the drive, so this is the bad drive that I just beat the crap out of. If I took the bottom of the drive and I just basically took like a drywall knife or something like that and put it in the hole, I could twist it and make the hole just a little bit bigger hmm. so that basically it's uh, big enough for the bearings to fall through. And you see that ring? There's a silver ring around the outside edge of that right now. Yes. <clears throat> basically, the ring that's on the bottom of the drive uh, where the magnets and everything are, are the same exact size. And so I can put them on top of here, and it's suspended. It basically isn't touching the platter or doing any damage to the platter. So I can flip the platters over and have a hole that's a little bit bigger, and I can press it out. Wow. So if you go forward, you'll see I'm pressing it out. I'm making sure it's big enough for me to be able to slide one through. Uh, and so I, you know, I had an extra one at this point to actually size it, and I'm just showing you that it's sized. But... We're actually getting this out of the junk drive in order to make what I have in my hand. Right, I see. So uh, so this is basically what I'm doing now. I'm taking it. You can see on the bottom of the drive, and I'm wearing gloves. Basically, I'm going to put it over the middle of this drive, and then I'm going to use the arbor press, which is basically that metal piece that's sitting above it that you actually see in the slide right now. Okay. So this is what it looks like now. I'm sitting on the bottom of the drive flipped upside down. And I've got it on my press, and I basically have a drift, a post that I bought. There's about a, a whole set of them was like 30 bucks. It wasn't a big deal. And I'm basically going to punch it through, and then the, you can advance to the next slide. Okay. And it basically will fall out of the bottom, and I'll have this particular piece. Now, now my problem was is that getting one out, it'll still have this post on it. The post will still be sticking out. And for the one that I want to use as a regular tool, in order to continue to remove all of my uh, spindle motors yeah. and all of the uh, fluid bearings in the future, right. I didn't I didn't want that nipple sticking off the top of it, basically. Right. The little post that's sticking out. So I got a cheap uh, saw, basically, to continue forward. Uh, now you can use a hacksaw or you can use whatever. You just need to make it very smooth. So we're going to cut off the end of that so that we actually have one smooth chunk of metal. Now... I used a uh, a twenty five dollar saw I got at Har Harbor Press, basically that had a vise and everything already attached to it. Uh, if you hit next, you'll see the one I used. So this is what I used. It was twenty five bucks. It had a little vise and it had a circular saw on it with a safety button. And so basically, I could cut this little piece off and smooth it out uh, all in one fell swoop. So I just kind of put it up against it and butt up against it and then smoothed it out. 
And so once I had it smoothed out, you'll see now it fits perfectly over the bottom of a drive in that same exact space. Right. And so I could use this to push out uh, using the Arbor Press. I could now push the other platters out. So at this point, I've got a way to push it out. This is basically my tool set. I'm using uh, two drives now basically for mine because I have a drilled out hole in one and a spacer for the other. Uh, you can use one. You could actually get it done with just one drive. And uh, and also, uh, I'm also adding a caliper in here. Now, a caliper, a digital caliper, this one was about $15 at Harbor Press. Uh, basically, I'm going to use it for some measurements. But my current problem is I needed a way to catch the platters as they're falling out of the bottom of the drive. I needed something they could sit in. I just couldn't put it up on the Arbor Press or they would be touching the Arbor Press itself. <coughs> Excuse me. Causing problems uh, with the platters falling because I didn't want to hurt the client's data. So if you advance forward, you'll see. Uh, what I basically found is that if I took another drive and I dremeled out the area around it so that the platters and the spacers would match, that basically I could take two clamps, put it on each end, and set them over each other and put it up on the Arbor Press. And when I push it out, they will fall down directly into the drive below it in the same exact place. <laughs> Get and, out of here. And this, the stator, basically that stator that was the top of the motor, yeah. would actually push against the top of the platters in that in that uh, silver uh, spindle location right in the middle. And it would keep the platters from touching anything. It would basically fall right down on top of the stator and so if you hit the next button, you'll see that uh, basically, see on the left-hand side, see where the hook now comes out from the spacer on the motor itself from right. the platters there? Yep. So uh, it's in reverse because you can see where it used to be on the right. right. See the one on the right? Right. So now this is upside down. And so basically, I dremeled down enough so that when it sits in there, it just falls right into place. And that kind of helps it stay without touching anything else in the drive. So right. the platters are still suspended in the middle without touching any other metal. So it was kind of amazing that they just kind of all fit together in opposite order correctly. It's, it's very amazing, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty cool. You, you can Dremel, you know, I did have to use a Dremel to kind of Dremel out some of the areas so it matched exactly. Right. But when you're, you're doing it on your practice drive, and so initially you're trying to get all these parts in the first place, so you're just going to use one or two, you know, dummy or cheap drives and bang them out in the exact shape that you need, basically. Right. They're caught. So, uh, and since I'm using a one-ton press and not a two-ton or a three-ton or something else, when it breaks free, it breaks free just enough to hit the top of the stator without it causing, you know, any damage and without, you know, the discs aren't pummeling through the bottom of the drive or anything like that like it would on a two-ton press or right. something. No, it's so, quite, quite amazing so far. Yeah, so... Now, this is what happens. So, basically, it falls down, and the bottom uh, of the drive with the stator is holding up the top of the drive upside down. And so, I'm just showing you a photo there where that's the case. And you could just pick it up with a glove with gloves like that? And yeah. Would... Um, now, I am touching, and keep in mind, some of these are development pictures. I'm touching the outside, just the flat outside edges of the platters. Right. Now, you know, I'm not getting fingerprints, oil, or grease, or certainly... Uh, with a you know good enough pair of gloves, you're okay. I really could use the spacers themselves. You know these spacers go all the way around the outside edge of the platters, yeah. and I could use the spacers to handle most of the stuff. But if you are going to touch the platters, make sure you're wearing gloves and they're you know smooth and clean, and you're only touching these outside edges. And it, it and won't not, it won't hurt the alignment either, huh? 
No, uh, at this point in time, they're all still mounted. I didn't remove any screws from the top of the spindle and the platters themselves. So there is no change in alignment. They are all held on by pressure and the screws that are still in their original locations. Wow. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. So if you hit next, now you'll see I've done this. I, you know, I'm doing the animation now. I've captured this thing. And now basically this is where I've drilled this hole out in this extra drive in the bottom. And I'm basically flipping this over. Now you do have to be, you know, you have to basically have two areas to do this in. You've got to have like your hard, dirty area and your clean area where when you're finally handling the platters, that are the client's platters that you're doing it in the cleanest area possible. So, uh, so you know, maybe not necessarily a clean room. It's great to have a clean room if you guys have one. Uh, I have one, and you can mount an Arbor Press in the clean room, and then that way you can keep everything clean in that area while you're working on it. But if you don't have one, that doesn't mean that you're done. You can still do the same thing, just making sure that you've used, you know, some sort of a, a good clean own air. You're going to clean off the entire area. Make sure that there's as little dust as possible. And your biggest problem isn't dust itself. Uh, you know, your biggest problem is probably that you're going to poke it with a piece of metal or, you know, you're going to let the drift fall off and it's going to hit the platters. So you got to be really careful about that, making sure that that doesn't happen and practice enough that you know that you're not going to do that. Right. And, and um, you know, the little metal fragments, if, if any touched it at all, you can blow it off with air. Make sure that you try to keep it clean. Uh, after a little bit of practice, it'll go fine and you won't have that problem. But uh, okay. you do have to do it a few times before you're kind of used to it. Okay. And then you hit next. So now I'm basically to the spot where I need to do this again. I'm going to do the exact same process again on a working drive, but not the client drive, so that I can remove the spindle motor. And I'm going to take it out, obviously not cutting off the post that's sticking out because I need that for this drive. So this is now basically another good working drive that I'm going to remove that with. Now... Once you've actually removed it, and you've done that process twice, and so you've got a working motor, a working uh, bearing, and you're going to replace it in the bottom of your client drive, you're going to need to take measurements. So this particular device is called a caliper, and I'm using a digital caliper. Now, a lot of people use the end, you know, where it looks like two forks down at the end, and you're going to measure between things. I'm not going to do that. I'm measuring height. So on the bottom, you see that pin that's basically sticking out the bottom of the caliper? Yeah. That pin still gives you a reading and a measurement on the digital caliper on the top. And so I'm going to use that to actually do my measurements of depth. Now, the reason I'm going to do measurements is uh, two reasons that I found mainly. Uh, one is none of the spindle bearings are exactly the same depth from drive to drive. When they're making them, they align them according to you know, whatever the manufacturing process was for that particular drive. Okay. So they're at different heights. So if you hit next, you'll see what I mean. So this one, the, the, the bearings themselves are almost flush with the bottom of the drive. Right. So I'm measuring this with that pin sticking out basically on the bottom to make sure, you know, how far I am or how far off I am. Now, in the next picture, you'll see this particular spindle bearing was a lot lower. Sure. So this one's further in. <clears throat> so on your client drive, on the one you're replacing, you need to get the spindle to be in the same, the bearings to be in the exact same location. So you have to basically measure your client drive and write that stuff down. And then make sure that when you're putting it back together, you're going to use this arbor press to push the thing back in, and you're going to jiggle it back into place from the top and the bottom again. Uh, but you need to get it at the same height. Um, I have found that you can be off by 0.3. 
basically three tenths of a millimeter. That's how far you have to be off. So you have to be really close to accurate. Point three tenths of a millimeter is where you want to be. If you're varying by much more, because if it, you know, you can vary a little bit, but yeah. you know, that's that's typically what I'm shooting for is three tenths of a millimeter for this to be right. And uh, then you, the heads will realign and the platters will realign. Everything will be fine. You you don't have to re-epoxy anything, do you? Um, I do sometimes. You don't really have to do it to actually get the data off, but it's a good idea to epoxy it. Uh, basically, if you have one that's loose that doesn't fit exactly right, um, I'll show you in a minute. It's on it's on another slide. But okay. uh, now, it, you know, this particular time, I'm actually using the caliper. I've decided to start measuring the heads themselves. Uh, if you hit the next slide, you'll see. Uh, basically what I'm doing now is at, before now, you know, obviously this talk is primarily about the bearings themselves. Mm -hmm. I've given plenty of other talks that were about, uh, head replacements and replacing the heads themselves. Right. Well, what I'm doing, what I'm doing here though, is, uh, I'm improving the process of removing the heads and putting them back on. I have two dashes, two negative dash, two dashes look like negative signs in red right. on this arm right here. Yes. So what I've done is right at the point where I've backed it off of the edge of the platter, I've lined up my caliper and I took a measurement and I wrote it down on the first line. And then I took one a little bit further down on the second line. And I note where I put the caliper and how far down it was that I pointed. This way it's level. And then this way when I put the head assembly back in after replacing the platters, that I can re-put it back into the exact same location that it was in. And as long as I put the platters and the height of the spindle motor, the spindle bearings, back in at the exact same height, then they will measure out. So I need to keep these aligned and those aligned in order for the whole thing to go back together correctly. Jeez. Yeah. So, uh, so now I'm actually going through the process, break it out again. You can hit the next slide. Uh, now, I'm using these clamps. It is very important that if you're going to use the second drive as your base drive on the bottom, that you level things off, that you actually get a level and level them off, and that you clamp them together on both sides so that the two drives don't slide. If they slide, you stand a chance of doing damage to the drive. And they have to be in the exact same <coughs> position, exactly exactly on top of each other. Yes. Uh, that you know, Otherwise, the spacers and the stuff won't fall through correctly. Right. So that's what I'm doing. I'm basically lining them up. And I did start using a clamp on the other end from end to end. So I've got one more clamp now that I normally use from end to end to keep them aligned. I see. And then I'll punch it out with the with um, the Arbor Press at this point. Now, this is the client drive. This is where it now has fallen in upside down, and I'm actually showing I'm removing the top drive. Now, the top drive is going to be what I'm going to put back together because the top drive is the actual client's original components right. taking the measurement. And then I'm punching through with a drift, and I'm, again, punching out that center uh, piece so that I can get rid of the crappy one. And this is basically the Arbor Press or uh, a mask of the Arbor Press that I'm using. Uh, again, like a $45 Arbor Press. Now, this picture is a little bit uh, weird because you're actually seeing the reflection of the bottom of the Arbor Press back up in the Arbor Press. So, uh, so the platters are actually still there. The whole ring is still there. I'm putting the center bearings back into uh, the center of a platter. And I'm basically trying not to put too much pressure on it. I'm putting just enough to push it down a little bit so I can take the measurement. I, I need to take this is a, This is a very deceiving shot because it's, it's, it's a mirror. The platters are basically yeah. being, okay, I see it. Right. It's a mirror, and it's reflecting back from the other side. So right. where you see the center and there's a line, that's actually now where the mirror starts and then begins to right. show shoot up. All right, so I, cu I cut you actually, off, sorry. That's okay. Uh, so... 
So uh, basically, I'm slowly pushing the spindle bearings back into the cap, and I, I need to get them the same height too. You actually have to take the measurement from the top of the platters themselves also on how high up the pin is that's sticking through the top of the cap. Usually it's pretty flush, but it's not always flush. But, you know, keep in mind when you're putting this back in, you're going to be pressing it back in with the Arbor Press. You need to make sure that those measurements are the same. So you're going to have to keep turning it over until you wiggle it back into the exact same height that it was supposed Jeez, to be. Just crazy. Yep. Okay. And then this is just a, the long shot from the side. So you can actually see that that's what I'm doing. I'm actually pressing it back in in that particular location. Okay. Cal and taking measurements again to make sure that I get it back in the right place. Ah. And then I do have, I've been using the super glue epoxy. This epoxy sets pretty quick and it's been powerful enough that, you know, you know, that I could break it out again with the, with using the Arbor press and its component, but this is strong enough to keep it in place so that it spins and doesn't cause the motor to spin or move on its own. You put the epoxy in after you put the pin in. Okay. Uh, you can, you can put the epoxy in at the same time. You basically can put one drip on the inside ring, uh, and it'll, and as soon as you do, as soon as you're part putting it back in, it's going to start to, to set. So you have to be careful to go ahead and get your alignment right. Or I've tried, I've been doing it okay on the bottom after it's done, basically filling the entire crevice and trying to hold the epoxy there. It's okay. Uh, it's not as perfect as it would be if there was a drop on the inside when it squeezed it in, gotcha. but it's not as hard to, uh, manipulate back into place i see so so that was pretty much it that was pretty much the overview of my development process i'll smooth things out and i'll have you know a little bit better documentation and you know grooves and stuff cut out maybe um i mean there's always a chance maybe i'll mill some parts or something and you know sell something cheap or whatever but basically for a hundred bucks and stuff that you can find you know at your local store you could get this job done and so data recovery companies could do this without uh, too much effort. It's certainly, you know, maybe if you want to go buy a more expensive tool or you want to spend $6,000 on one little tool to do this process, then uh, that's always an option too. Well, if it's, but, between, uh, if it's between doing that and $6,000, yeah, do your method. But that, that's right. hardcore. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely, guys who are watching or listening to this anyway, I'm going to put this video up on the site. So just go to the Podnuts com and go to the actual page. I'll have this whole video up if you want to watch the uh, the animations and the slides along with Scott saying it. And also, you could go to myharddrivedie.com, which is Scott's site, and it's under presentations. Um, the these slides will be under presentations. Okay. Uh, I have not added them yet. They will be any any day now. So by the time you go there, they're going to show up under recent content and talks under the presentation tab. Yeah, so, if, so if anybody's listening, don't worry about not following along if you, if you didn't have video because uh, we'll ha I'll have either have it up on my site, but if you want more high res, you know, when Scott gets his up, you can watch him in better better res, but uh, at least I'll have my video up for whatever. For whatever yep. and, I, and I do have the, uh, the actual ShmooCon video that I did this weekend, uh, and that will be going up also, and that'll go up on YouTube, and that'll make its way. The slides, uh, the projector was really dark, so on those slides you won't be able to see them as well, but you can. I'll have the Flash actual content up, and people can download it and play it on their own and uh, use the animations or whatever they want, so that's fine. Yeah, that's, man, I think that that's cool. I, I bet a lot of people are going to watch this and, and be like, wow, that looks really tough, but I've, I've done projects like that, man. I think that's really fun. I, I can't imagine the sense of satisfaction you would get after actually achieving fixing the bearing on these drives. I mean, it's got to yeah. be killer. 
It's a, certainly been a, a learning adventure, and I really like, you know, the educational component is very important to me. And so understanding more about fluid bearings, I've read a lot of white papers and gone through a lot of the IBM content and the patents and stuff. And I was quite impressed that you know, every single little thing I find out about a hard drive everywhere has a tremendous amount of math behind it. And there's about six or seven pages of math just showing how pressure actually works and how the fluid bearings actually work. And, uh, you know, most people just thought, well, it's a post and there's some fluid in there, big deal. But, you know, those grooves and the way that they're cut and the math behind it is pretty phenomenal. And when you start reading the papers and the people that have designed it and the patents, I'm, I'm very impressed with that. And I enjoy teaching those components and adding that to my class. Uh, so I do have, you know, to mention that, I do have a class coming up in March, March 7th through 11th in Washington, D.C. Okay. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's about half full right now. And uh, I will be adding some of this content, and I try to keep, you know, discussing the new things in my new class material. So this stuff will be there. So anybody who wants to learn this process and do this process, uh, I'm trying to trying to scale so that this kind of content makes it in. Because you know, I constantly develop stuff. I'm constantly trying to add things in. Yeah, and uh, I think it's great. That's that's the that's the goal is to educate people. Sure, I think it's awesome. And the, hey, the more methods you could find for a hundred bucks, it's affordable. You know what I mean? More methods right. you could find to do stuff like that. That that's really valuable. I think so. I'm I'm happy to help and do everything I can. And you know that's that hacker mentality I have. I'll I'll buy the right equipment and I'll spend the money if necessary. Uh, you know it, it probably would have behooved the people that actually made this you know six thousand dollar tool to try to work with me to actually you know have me display it and show people and you know maybe would have driven more people in their direction to actually buy it. But the hacker in me basically says you know look there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, and there's a number of different ways you can produce a tool. Right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, this this one particular way. And so my way works, and it actually will get the job done, and it'll get smoother as you practice. And, and maybe I'll find other parts that actually fit in better. But for 100 bucks, you kind of can't beat it. I agree. Now, that $6,000 tool, if you use that, is the pr- I can't imagine the process being much easier than what you showed with that tool, is it? I I've never actually seen the tool or seen what the parts and the pieces are. They've uh, been very, you know, it's a black art. We're going to hide everything and not tell anybody. My understanding is, just from hearing about the tool, is that there's some parts that are milled out, and so they have specific specs for their milled out parts, so that instead of maybe doing all these measurements and things that I'm having to do, which I don't consider to be a lot. I mean, it generally takes about five minutes for me to figure out the measurements, put it down, and then try to go back and forth. But, uh, but you know, I think that they've got a sizer in, and some uh, some out parts that are done in advance. But my understanding is you still have to go get an arbor press. You still have to, you know, get your, you know, the air and your clean area and your clean room and all the other stuff that would go with it. But the only thing that they've done is created a, a milled out, you know, dr- you know, basically the same thing I'm using for the bottom spacer to punch it out with the arbor press. They've made one that was, you know, mass manufactured or something instead of taken from another drive and then you know sand it down not worth six grand if you ask me yeah probably not no. <laughs> all right let me uh we got some emails here and Great. let's uh let's go over these and i'll start reading the emails and i'm i think at last show i didn't delete the ones that we uh we already went over so if we started if we start going over some repeats let me know okay. scott and we'll, we'll, we'll stop all uh, right but this one i know is new this is from paul he says 
Scott and Steve, I was wondering why, after remapping sectors with MHDD on a Hitachi, Hitachi laptop drive, it did not increase its reallocated sector count in smart, even after a, after a power cycle. I'm starting to suspect uh, other makes also do not update this value. Um, so under normal use, would a remapping only occur during a format or during a write also? Um, I, I think it's a little bit kind of a, you know, it's going to be hard for me to answer this question exactly in an easy method because when I'm comparing stuff, I actually am using a very high-end tool that would display the actual tables instead of just the smart data. The smart data is reliant upon a feature that reaches a threshold and causes it to uh, error out and that threshold. So if, in other words, the head tries to read and write 10 times to a particular sector, that that would cause the threshold to be exceeded. And when that threshold is exceeded, then it will actually go to the smart table. When you're actually forcing it to get rid of slow sectors and doing that, I don't know that MHDD is making that same change, that it's actually causing this error to occur in that particular region that would cause it to update, or maybe smart isn't reflecting it correctly. Huh. There's a there's a couple of situations there. But uh, I would actually have to go through looking at like a PC3000, pull the table, compare what MHDD did, what smart did, and try to align those three. So, uh, so you know, maybe if he has, you know, one of the tools that can actually pull the real G-list table and look at it and see whether or not that was reflected in those changes, that would make sense. Uh, I believe the table is obviously updated, and so therefore, once those sectors are killed, that they're moved to the relocated table. You can usually tell by running a timing test. Uh, when you run a timing test, or if you just ran MHDD on a scan, the sectors that you would have thought you would actually get a longer delay process in for them to read because they'll take more than six milliseconds or seven milliseconds as to go to this to this relocated table and then return from it. There's also another tool called Bonnie Plus Plus, and there's a tool in it called Zcav, and that's a Linux tool. And Zcav will actually display a numeric table, which will show you how long it takes to read those sectors uh, and where the zones are, basically, if it has to go to another zone to read it. So it's a, a different. It's a difficult question for me to answer, not knowing his exact information and his right. exact thing. But um, you know, my my guess is is that there is something that's going on there, but that Smart hasn't hit the threshold. Smart may not be updating correctly based upon that, and that's probably true of most drives. Manufacturers don't like for Smart to update great uh, amounts of time because it'll tell somebody that basically you have a drive that's under warranty and it'll cost us more money to replace it. So manufacturers try to not update smart if it's not necessary under certain conditions. <laughs> and that that may be the case here with uh, not hitting that threshold value. Smart doesn't get triggered. I see. Now, that, that data should definitely help them. But um, thanks for the email, Paul. This one's from Larry. He says, uh, um, it's got four parts here. Number one, is it better to let drives sleep, spin down during idle times, or keep them running all the time? I've heard arguments both ways on this debate, but never any conclusions supported by facts. That is, that's a good question. I, I'm curious about that, too. What do you say? Yeah, I would say, generally speaking, that them spending down and not running all the time is probably better. It's better from a wear and tear perspective. However... Uh, Seagate hard drives. This is actually that firmware problem that basically gets triggered when they actually get uh, when they spin down and they have to wake back up. Yeah. And if it re if it rereads the reallocation tables and stuff like that, that's where this this firmware problem will cause a problem, and the drive won't come back. And that basically the firmware bug is triggered, causing a problem that stops you from being able to read from the drive. 
So, you know, generally speaking, I think that you're safe. It, it lowers the temperature. It lowers, you know, a lot of wear and tear on the drive. Heads aren't flying over the flatter, so it's wearing them down less. Although you've got that five to ten second wait time that you're waiting for the drive to come back. Um, that, you know, that's kind of the most, you know, annoying thing out of all of it. But, you know, in some cases, you don't even get a choice. Uh, recently, Western Digital upgraded some software to allow you to change the time at which these things go to sleep. But uh, overall, uh, you don't normally have, a, you know, there definitely wasn't any changes for a while that you could actually affect that it's going to sleep on its own, whether or not you wanted it to or not on right. the green drives and right. the things like that. So that's kind of the difference between some of the Enterprise editions and the green drives and the low-end drives is that you didn't have the ability to change this or that they went to sleep more often. Uh, enterprise drives, they think they're in a RAID array or they're in a, a server or something, and so they don't typically spin down. They just continue to run. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm always of the frame of mind. If I'm not using something, I don't, I don't want it on. So. Well, you know, the, the, old, the old thing that actually happened was, you know, like the idea with radios and tubes and TVs is that the worst thing for a electronics device is when you turn it on and that power surge surges through the system. Right. And so that's why light bulbs blow at that time. That's why, you know, tubes and TVs blew, things like that, is that power surge that passes through it is the worst thing. Now, you know, typically we've got capacitors, we've got conditioning, we've got other things that are involved. Most of your systems are fairly safe by comparison, but, you know, again, we're still dealing with power and fluctuations and things that can cause damage. And if you got a cheap power supply, it's certainly not going to be good for the device. So, so that still applies then, putting the first jolt of power through it. Yeah, you know, generally speaking, I would say that it's probably, that's probably still the most detrimental thing to the device is the second that you apply power to it, that surge that happens when it goes through everything. Huh, interesting. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, I would say that, you know, wear and tear on the drive and how much it's running. It's kind of like if I had my car and it ran all the time, even when I was in the house. Well, certainly the pistons and the engine and everything are going to get more worn out uh, than they would otherwise. So yeah. you're probably a lot safer from a standpoint of it spinning down and not going to sleep or, or going to sleep instead right. of not running on its own. All right. Sounds good. Number two, from a mechanical perspective, is it preferable to mount a drive horizontally or vertically? Some manufacturers' cases provide for mounting in either direction. Um, I think for the most part, it doesn't really matter today. Uh, the big deal is, you know, as I just described with fluid bearings, there's going to be some pressurized stuff and there's going to be some changes. But, you know, the drives typically are sturdy enough to run in almost any of those positions, upside down, sideways, whatever. They don't like to be moved while they're on, while they're running. That typically does affect the drive. And you can see, you know, we've done a lot of things even with like vibration sensors and stuff where you can actually see, like if I knock on the table, you'll actually see the drive actually vibrate. Or if I yell at the drive, there's a video, you know, there's a video out of a guy yelling at a rate array, and it actually makes waves as it's as you're yelling at it. You can actually <laughs> see that the vibrations are causing an effect to the drive. Wow. And, uh, and, and that was pretty well known. It's actually always kind of been around. I actually can show that, and I do it in my class sometimes where I'll actually show, like, the accelerometers and stuff and what's actually happening. And then if you just kind of move it around and wave it around a little bit while you're doing it or even knock the table, you'll get a pretty bad uh, influx of vibration. But uh, the big thing now is that there's little metal fragments that are on the platters. Sometimes things happen, the little metal pieces come off or whatever, and they get flung around the tray. There's air pressure, and basically it pushes the little metal fragments back behind this filter. And there's a filter that sits sideways in the drive, and it captures this content outside the edge of the platters. 
Well, the problem is, is that if you change the orientation with a lot of content behind it that's stuck in the filter, if anything is of any substantial size, it might fall back down inside the drive. And so when that happens, it might get stuck between the head or something else like that when the drive starts back up, causing damage. So that's why, like, old servers, you know, if you don't back them up before you move them, it might be the last time you ever saw the data. So those are the kind of things that you want to look out for. But uh, generally speaking, horizontal, upside down, whatever, things are, uh, the at least the spindle component is pressurized internally so it doesn't affect the fluid. And the heads already fly a certain height based on air pressure off the platters. So that's really not affected. So, uh, so that's the worst thing that can possibly happen is maybe some fragments fall out of the drive. Awesome. It's good to know. Uh, number three, well, I, while I realize he doesn't support uh, SpinWrite for data recovery, what does Scott think about running SpinWrite periodically for maintenance purposes just to keep the surfaces refreshed? Would it be harmful in any way? Um, it's only harmful in the fashion that if something bad did happen, I mean, keep in mind that this tool is picking up data, looking at the data, trying to put the data back down, refreshing the surface, uh, which in some instances a little bit what happens when you defrag a hard drive in a much smaller sense. But, uh, I, you know, I think that basically that's what SpendWrite's purpose is for, is a maintenance situation where there may not be any bad sectors or, you know, at that point in time that maybe it's something that's on the edge and it refreshes that content. I just think it's detrimental or dangerous to try to do something like that without a backup or knowing anything, but you'll probably run into a problem or the same problem that SpendWrite might have run into at the same time. Uh, you know, keep in mind that SpinWrite touches every sector on the platter as it goes across the drive. So if there is a damaged sector or there is something bad or there's physical damage where a head might be, it may cause it to dig in on the platter, causing more substantial damage. I see. But, but uh, generally speaking, as a maintenance tool, I have no uh, you know problem with SpinWrite from that perspective. I just, you know, I'm just adamant that maybe you should make sure that your data is online, backed up, or, you know, you've got something that's going someplace sooner or later it might fail and then you have nowhere to go right good point has, uh, last part oops sorry i shifted your video there here we go has hard drive quality decreased over the years seagate drives formerly carried a five-year warranty which has been reduced to three years is this indicative of overall quality i.e they don't make them like they used to Yep, I agree. I agree that I think drives are made a lower quality today. I think what's happened basically is in this race to, first thing is, they're in a race to get the cheapest drive out there. I mean, if you really think about it, if you look at the parts and the work that went into making a two terabyte drive for, you know, $55 or whatever, you know that it's worth a lot more than $55. So surprisingly enough, uh, probably if you just add up the parts, it might be close to being more than $55 worth of stuff for that space. Uh, I, I think that they're using lower-grade memory. They're not baking it as long as they used to. You have more degenerative parts that are not going to keep up with it. Uh, and certainly, there there has been a change in the way the technology works that has been written to the drive. So in the old days, you know, let's say the 90s, being the old days, uh, drives were written in a with an MR head. And that magnetic uh, resisto head basically is writing in a longitudinal fashion on the drive. That content is a little easier for those heads to read, and the drive is a little more robust. However, it was also more expensive. So, you know, if you spend, you know, uh, you know, $300 on a drive that's a 40, 40, you know, gig drive, you're expecting it to work 
longer periods of time. Well, you wouldn't have had 40 gigs in the 90s. Uh, that you're not looking at 40 gigs until uh, 2001 or so. Right. But but uh, but roughly speaking, you had differences in quality in memory and boards and technology and what has actually been used over that time. Then you have today. You have this race to create the cheapest uh, generic piece of junk by the lowest manufacturer in China. Uh, chips and the quality are rushed, and there's not a lot of testing time. If you really look at even like our progression through what's called perpendicular recording, which all the drives currently use, that was released in 2006. The first actual books and technology that I read on it uh, coming into play in hard drives was in 2004. So they actually went from there to production and out the door. Now, I'm not saying that that was the entire time that it was actually produced before it got there, but I can't imagine that they had a large period of time to actually test it before it actually went out the door. Oh, no. So, two years? Come on. Yeah, at best, if that. I mean, it, they're in a hurry to get it out the door. And uh, that's kind of the situation that we're finding more and more. And that's the, kind of the difference between enterprise drives. Enterprise drives are made with higher quality electronics, the things that have been baked longer, and that that's why they cost more. That's also why SCSI drives cost more. The reliability factor is a little bit higher, and the quality of the equipment and what they're actually using is a better quality. Right. So, you know, you go buy a $50 drive, that's what you're going to get is a $50 drive. You buy two of them so you can back up on it. Maybe you should buy three of them so that you can do it in triple redundancy. But yeah, <laughs> I just bought two. Uh, I don't know what you're buying drives for, but I was I was kind of proud of myself. Bought two uh, drives over at CompUSA the other day. Two terabyte SATA drives for seventy nine bucks each. Wow, that's good. awesome. That's a good deal. Good. Yeah, sounds yeah. The sales flyer said ninety nine each, but when I paid for them, I it came up at seventy nine. So. Wow. I'm, I said, are you sure that's right? And he said, yeah, that's right. So, no, well, on. maybe that's why CompUSA is going out of business. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's, it's basically a tiger direction. I know. I'm kidding. <laughs> that's a joke. All right. Um, next email. We've covered this before, but uh, let's just do it again just for the heck of it. Not this exact email, but this question. Uh, one question for the hard drive guru, Scott Moulton. What program for data recovery or to recover data or files that have been overwritten would you suggest the internet is not helping make it clear which one is the best? The list of quote good ones I found for what I think is, and she she lists about or it's Jan. I don't know if it's Jan as a guy or girl in Italy. Um, he says uh, digital rescue premium, advanced disk recovery, recover my files, data recovery wizard, and get data back is the list he found. He dug up, but what do you think, Scott? Well, if I understand what you just read me, it said overwritten files. Yeah. Yes. If you overwrote the data, it is not recoverable with any software. Ah. Period. It's overwritten. Therefore, in that magnetic space, there is now something else. Okay. So deleted and overwritten are two different things. So deleted files, basically, there is still residual space on the drive that includes that content. And so from that standpoint, it would be recoverable by searching the drive by what's called headers. Basically, there's a string at the front of a file and the end of a file that basically say, I am a file. Here I am. Go get me. Or, you know, certain instances where like the MFT and Windows master file table contains data that shows that something else was deleted but still exists on the drive. Uh, so in those cases, I typically run uh, Get Data Back or our Studios are two of the major packages that I use from that standpoint. You could also use some free tools like Scalpel or Foremost to get the job done. Um, basically, searching for those headers. There's another one that's called, uh, you know, Test Disk. Basically, has a a program that goes with it. It's called uh, PhotoRec, 
And PhotoRec is a fantastic little application that they've added a lot of headers from a lot of file names. It doesn't just recover photos at this point. It recovers other content. But, uh, you know, to kind of end that discussion, if it's overwritten, if I actually overwrote the file with something or I used a pattern wiping tool and overwrote it, Screwed. it's gone. Yeah, there's no way to recover that data. Okay. All right. Sorry about that, Jan, but thank you for the email. Uh, William writes in, and you, uh, last show you were talking about uh, backup backup software that you that you were liking and testing right. and stuff. Yeah, online, online. back. Um, we had some guys, and William's one of them who loves CrashPlan. He says CrashPlan rules. I can max my upstream connection with it. Right. So what? Well, you- uh, well, you know, I really haven't tried CrashPlan. Uh, it's one of the ones that's kind of on my list to go back and double check, kind of thing. Uh, you know, the thing with, uh, you know, crash plan, uh, the way I understand it is basically it kind of makes all of your machines kind of a rate array, basically. It distributes your content across all your machines, and all your machines basically become your backup devices wherever they're at. And uh, so, you know, I, I probably need to spend a little time going back and doing that. But, you know, over Christmas and then doing the research for this particular talk, I didn't have time to cover that again. Um, I've been really happy with uh Dropbox, just from a standpoint of I have, you know, 10 machines that it basically syncs and redistributes all my data back to, but I, I am limited to 100 gigs on their current plan. So, uh, but, you know, pumping 100 gigs is pretty tough anyway. Right. So you're still using Dropbox then? Yeah, I think uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Dropbox. I think it's a, a great way. I mean, it makes a folder on your drive. You put your stuff in there and you don't even have to pay attention to it from that point. It will automatically duplicate whatever files are in there to whatever other machines that you have the same account for Dropbox installed on. So I use, you know, I have a development Mac. I have a, uh, a Mac that I use when I'm actually uh, traveling that's kind of a blank Mac that, you know, if it you know if it gets seized at the airport or something like that, then there's no company data on. And I use that one for, you know, projects that I'm projecting or doing talks at cons and things like that. And basically I can work at something on my desk, hop up, hit the road, and then it syncs to my laptop yeah. when I get to the hotel. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it tends to work extremely well without me having to pay any attention to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan too. I mean, I, I use Pogo Plug, and I got that, and I've been using that for a while. But I use Pogo Plug in conjunction with Dropbox. They're both really cool. Right. Okay, this one is from Simon. I think you read this one, but uh, see if this, if this refreshes your memory. Uh, he says, hey, Steve, I took Scott's class, and I loved it. I had a couple of questions for next time you have them on. I usually use my DeepSpar DDI for recovery, but occasionally I hook up damaged drives to my write blocker, and that unit is firewalled to an XP box. I wondered, does FireWire see the full ATA command set, or am I better off just hooking up through SATA or IDE? FireWire is pretty convenient and fast for scanning. Let's see. Um, I'll read the second part. I'm not sure if it's related to the first. I had an SAS drive recovery recently. Wondered if there's any advice you could give on dealing with their interface. I've heard there are several t- different types, and the interface does not work with many of the recovery tools I have. Are there adapters that can be used with these types of drives? Okay, it looks like second question, two questions, but that's from Simon. Right. Okay, so uh, so the first the first part of that is, uh, um, one more time, what was the, just Hit it again real quick. Yeah. I usually use my Deep Spar DDI right. for recovery, but occasionally I hook up damaged drives to my right blocker, and that unit right. is firewall to Okay, so on the, uh, on the FireWire side, FireWire is a little bit more featured than the USB or the USB devices. However, the, uh, the devices that typically support them 
are limited in their capabilities anyway. So in other words, if you're using a write blocker, whatever the commands and the control that you have for that particular write blocker are probably the same commands and control. Your problem with a write blocker is that it is basically software that's emulated that's running inside of a write blocker. When a bad block comes across or bad sectors come across, if it doesn't get what it's expecting, then basically the write blocker can crash and lock up on its own as well. It's kind of a software in a box that prevents you from writing to the disk. And so there are times where you have a weird size or you've got some damaged area that the write blocker itself will lock up. But uh, you are better off probably using FireWire, especially for the throughput, or, you know, eSATA, which, uh, you know, then you're looking at a different write blocker or something along those lines, and you would get more, you know, more throughput than you would through USB and the capability a little bit more robustly. Uh, FireWire supports more uh, native commands and as a more robust command set than USB is from that standpoint. Um, now, on the SAS side, really, you're kind of stuck on the SAS side. You really have to use the basic controller that supports SAS. There's not really uh converters and things like there is to go from you know sata to sas or whatever i know that there's a lot of things out there that basically say i can use uh you know a converter from uh, a sas to a sata but it's not it's not in that way it's not for sas drives uh, it's basically for like a bridge that it uses for a connector but it's not to support the device or, or the drive command itself so when i'm doing recovery on a sas device i actually have to have it controlled by a SAS controller uh, and trying to image it and do that whole thing. Your problem is most of the time SAS drives are coming out of a RAID array, and so you've got to treat them individually and then bind them all together anyway. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so, so you do have to still go through the process of imaging every single drive and doing the, you know, the standard recovery. Uh, but you know, on the flip side, SAS and, and uh, SCSI is a more robust uh, protocol than what we're using for IDE and SATA. Right. Good. Very good. Let me read. Um, actually, that's it for the voicemails. I have, or that's it for the emails. I have one voicemail. Here's a message from the door-to-door geek to Scott. Hello, Steve. This is door-to-door geek. I had a couple questions for Scott and my hard drive guide. Um, well, first thing, I just asked Scott to not count crash plan out. Um, Partially because of its flexibility, he can set up his own master server and sync back and forth to that. Uh, if you do that and you don't pay them, it's not syncing, it's backup. If you do pay to use their service, then it is syncing. Um, it's a very interesting pro- product. I appreciate it because it's truly cross-platform. Uh, second thing was uh, spin rights. I know, I'm never going to drop it. My question to him is, how does he feel about using it for maintenance instead of recovery? Um, the main reason I ask is I have now a 9- or 10-year-old uh, drive, and it's still working apparently just fine. Every uh... oh, Looks like door got cut off. But you actually you did answer the question about spin right for maintenance. It's funny that two of those yeah, questions came right. in at the same, the same time. Question. Yeah, Yeah. Uh... Yeah, I mean, certainly spin right for maintenance. I, I mean, I can see that, you know, working fine. I, you know, obviously the problem is basically it comes on a floppy or a CD or disk or whatever, and you've got to reboot your machine, run maintenance on it. It'll take a day for it to run and then, you know, reboot, whatever. But uh, but certainly I, I don't really have a problem with that. And 
you know, since the same person is talking about crash plan, I'm assuming he has a backup. So as long as he's got a backup and he's safe, then uh, that's not a problem. I understand. <laughs> My only problem with Spinrite as a whole ever is that they call it recovery software, but it doesn't recover anything. It puts it right back on the same drive. Right. If it was going to recover something, it should write that to a secondary drive. And so that would be fantastic if they ever enabled that so that it would write to a second drive. Then we would have at least a, a different way for me to talk about Spinrite. But, I, you know, that's... You know, a lot of people seem to be very happy and dependent upon it, but not really know exactly what it does <laughs> and the damage that it can actually do. But I see yeah. it on my side. Now, as far as crash plan goes, well, you know, I've gotten a lot of responses that say, take another look. And, you know, again, I, you know, I'm happy with Dropbox. I can probably use it in conjunction. I do have servers. I have a whole set of servers. I have a 24 terabyte server at the office. 24? Yeah, I have a 24 terabyte server, uh, RAID 6, 24 terabyte server, and I have an additional uh, 18 terabytes or something or so on a secondary server. And so those things are already being backed up and, and going out, and I've been living on Dropbox for portability of my regular files that I actually work with. Yeah. But uh, CrashPan has some interesting content, some things, and supports all three platforms, and, uh, you know, you know that that's it. It warrants uh, an additional look, and so I'll take another look at it and see how well that that goes. Sounds good. All right, Scott. Before we end off, uh, why don't you tell us where people can find you or where you're going to be in the near future? Um, I am going to be. My next thing is going to be the class in Washington D.C. So from March sixth, I mean it's March seventh to March eleventh. So uh, on myharddrive.com, there is a classes page. And there is a form that you can basically send me. Uh, I have basically three formats for my classes. And so those that's basically the seated five-day class where everyone will actually be in the class for in Washington, D.C. Then I have an additional one that's following up that will be in Atlanta in April, from April 11th to April 15th. And I also sell my class in a box, basically, for the people who can't make a seated class or can't get to those locations or they want all the tools and everything basically bundled together, it will all be in that same location. So uh, that's called a distance learning class. And so you can find that on My Hard Drive Died or go to the store section. If you want to see a sample of the old version one class, there's a book up there that's basically like 20 bucks. And you can, uh, you can go buy it from Lulu or whatever, and it's got about 600 pages of printed material and things with it. The current book that actually goes with the current classes, which is not sold online directly, is 1,200 pages currently. So that has expanded, includes text and examples and all kinds of content, and about 160 hours of video goes on the drive with that particular class. Um, after that, the next thing is going to be the conference, uh, Outer Zone, and that will be on March 18th and March 19th in Atlanta. And later on this year, uh, another person and I are putting on, uh, with two other people, uh, uh, a conference called Sky Dog Con. Wait, and say, so say Dog it again. Con, you broke up a little bit. It's called Sky Dog Con. Okay. So Sky Dog Con <laughs> is the name of this other conference that we're putting together, which is, uh, you know, basically all the names were taken. No, uh, Sky Dog is the name of, uh, it's a, a hacker conference, basically. And that's going to be actually later in the year. We're looking at October or so uh, for that to exist. So that's basically the upcoming stuff that we're working on. That one's going to actually be in uh, Tennessee. We're looking at Nashville, Tennessee, and renting a 
facility there and trying to make a con that's kind of a little similar to ShmooCon and uh, doing security talks and privacy talks and things like that and uh, kind of having uh, a hacker uh, environment for people to learn. And, you know, you can tell from the way that I'm doing things, you know, I try not to make things a secret and they're, and they're not a black art and I try to expand that knowledge. And so that's basically our idea behind putting together these cons is to publish these videos and put them out there and to let people see them and to not hide it in a corner somewhere where people don't know what's going on. Right, right. Good stuff, man. Sounds exciting, very geeky. I'm sure a lot of the listeners would love it and be interested in going to that some of that stuff and interested well, in your kit as well. Well, thank you. And like I said, in a couple of days, I'll have the videos from ShmooCon and the animations put up for this talk and the talk that I did at the uh, DOD, the Department of Defense Cybercrime Summit, is already put up on the site. It's under the uh, current talks and uh, current information. So that's already about one-third down on the presentation page. And there'll be a lot more uh, free material put up. I pretty much put it all out there. Sounds good. Thanks again. Well, thank-, thank you very much again, Scott. Well, thanks for having me on, Steve. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. And that is going to be it for My Hard Drive Die for this week. Thank you guys for watching, listening, streaming. Uh, stay tuned for Linux for the rest of us coming on at 8.30. See you guys next time. Music provided by Evan King at purevolume.com slash Evan King. <laughs>